I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 15. We're going to cover verses 7 through 13. Romans chapter 15, verses 7 through 13. You probably have noticed that uh, people worship in a lot of different ways. Some people feel comfortable gathering in a home. Some people sit underneath the tree as they worship. Others gather in a, a small hut or in an auditorium like this. Still others worship in a mall and some worship in a stadium. Sometimes the worship leader is very casual. Sometimes it's a little more formal with robes and a choir. Sometimes the teachers dress a little more formally than I am and sometimes a little less formally than I am. Sometimes the instruments are handmade or no instruments at all or modern, contemporary instruments. Or traditional, by which we mean Western European traditional. Everyone has different traditions. Some people dance, lyrical dance, and then at other places, everybody joins in and dances in the midst of worship. Sometimes there's lighting of candles or burning of incense. Some people paint on stage while they worship. Others read scripture. Sometimes people stand with their arms raised. Sometimes they're sitting on a mat on the floor or kneeling or sitting with their hands raised and their heads covered. Sometimes worship is reserved. Sometimes it's very expressive. Sometimes the dress is traditional and formal. Sometimes it's very casual. But the point is that we're all one family of God. We're all one family of God, and unfortunately, sometimes even the way that we worship can rather than pull us together, it can pull us apart, and it can cause separation and division within what should be one family of God. And what Paul has been trying to emphasize in chapters 12 through 15 is God's purpose in justifying through Jesus Christ is all part of a a much larger plan through which he is making one family for himself. And he wants that family to be unified and to love one another in such a way that people look in and they see the way that we interact with one another and they see a, a picture of God and his glory and his righteousness. And so Paul, last week, uh, as we were studying, addressed issues particularly in the worship setting that were causing division in the Roman church. Remember he talked about uh, which day of the week you should worship, the eating of meat, drinking of wine, which in that context was all about worship. We applied it a little more broadly, but these were issues that were dividing people in worship. Which day should you worship on? If you were from a Jewish background, you worshiped on the Sabbath. Later, Christians began to worship on Sunday. It was the day of resurrection. Could you eat meat? Particularly meat that may have been purchased in the marketplace, previously offered to an idol, but now brought to the Lord's Supper? Well, for a Jew, that offended their whole history and culture. And what they thought was acceptable before the Lord, just it was difficult. And so you begin to have a, a separation even inside the worship service or, or wine that might have been poured out in part as a libation offering to a false god and then is brought to the worship setting and shared among Jew and Gentile. And it's creating division. And Paul says, you know, that's not how it should be because God is about creating one family for himself. And so as we observed last week, Paul gives an exhortation, chapter 14, verse 1. He says, accept the one who is weak in faith. He begins with those who are strong, which is the majority, and he speaks first to the majority and says, except those who are weak in faith. The ones who are strong are probably primarily Gentiles who don't have Jewish history and background, and so they don't have these these kind of inherent restrictions on their worship and what they feel comfortable with. And he addresses the strong and says, he says, watch out for those who are 
in the minority. Watch out for the individual. Watch out for the one who is vulnerable and accept him. Accept him. Don't be condescending toward him because of his background and what he feels comfortable with. Instead, be willing to sacrifice your own right. And, And you who are weak, don't judge those who have knowledge, who know there are no other gods but God and who can comfortably eat meat. Don't judge them. But if your conscience isn't clear, don't participate because that's sin against yourself. But accept one another. And now what Paul does in chapter 15, verse 7 is, in a sense, he puts bookends on this argument. And he reiterates the command. He says, therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also has accepted us to the glory of God. Now let's recall, what does he mean by this exhortation to accept one another? He doesn't simply mean put up with one another. And he doesn't mean particularly, he says, don't just welcome that person in so that you can beat him up with your arguments and try to win. But welcome that person in as, as a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, as a member of family. Found an interesting parallel, same verb, Psalm chapter 27. David is writing and he says, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will literally, he will accept me. In that, that rare experience where maybe a father or mother casts a child off, David says, however, I know that I will be welcomed in as family by God. And Paul says, this is what I want you to do for one another. Accept one another. Accept one another. Okay, that really has been the point he's driving home throughout. So when he speaks of uh, spiritual gifts, they're given so that we can serve one another. And then he says, love one another. Okay, sacrifice rights for one another. Uh, be of the same mind with one another. Humble yourselves underneath one another. Lift the other person up. All of these things are designed to exhort us to become one. But Paul never leaves us without motivation. So he throws in a reason for this. Read with me, chapter 15. Let's begin in verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also has accepted us to the glory of God. In other words, how can you be condescending toward a brother and sister or sister in Christ when God has accepted that person in Christ? How can you judge that person when God has accepted that person? And how is it that Christ accepts us? Does he wait to welcome us into the family until we have it all figured out? <laughs> until we're, we're mature in absolutely every area? Well, yeah, now you can come in. Now you can be my child. No, God accepts us in Christ exactly where we are. Not overlooking our sin, but dealing with our sin in Jesus. In other words, God can accept us in Christ because he punished our sin in Christ. And so now he can see us in Christ fully forgiven, but also realistically with all of our faults and all of our fears and all of our failures and all of our immaturities, he says, let me bring you in. And so people should experience that same sense within the church. The church should be absolutely the most welcoming and warm place. People should feel like, you know, I can come in and be accepted exactly as I am right here, right now. Not that people will overlook my sin, but they'll accept me. They're not condoning my sin but they are accepting me as a person. In other words, we should be communicating always, come as you are, 
Just don't stay that way. Okay? We're all in process and none of us has everything figured out. God's working in our lives, but let's go on this journey together, accepting one another because God has accepted us in Christ. God has accepted us in Christ. That, that's the beauty of the gospel message. God welcomes people who are broken. I had someone say to me the other day, you know, that they were really struggling, really struggling because they'd come to church and they'd seen somebody who they'd heard the previous night had been out drinking, gotten drunk. And you know what I say to that? I say, man, I'm so glad they woke up. <laughs> I'm glad they woke up and they came to church. And I hope that while they're here, they sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Both. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. God welcomes us as we are because he's dealt with our sin in Christ. The gospel is, God has fully removed the debt of your sin by the payment of Jesus Christ. And when you believe that, you have life that lasts forever. You can't earn that, and you don't deserve it. That's what grace means. And we all come at exactly the same level. We don't come offering God anything that merits our acceptance by him. We come to the foot of the cross and it's the great leveling ground for all of humanity. No matter what your sin is, no matter what your background is or your failure is or your race or anything about you, we all come with empty hands and say, God, fill us up. Give us Christ. And so in the body of Christ, Paul says, accept one another. And he gives a reason for this. Let's read again verse 6. Be of the same mind with one another according to Christ, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. This is the the reason we exist, so we can glorify God. And you know, that's a huge concept in the Bible. It's really difficult to wrap your mind around, so let me try and simplify it as much as possible. To glorify has two components. One is is that of significance. So the Hebrew word for glory literally meant something weighty or heavy. And if you glorify something, you give it due weight, metaphorically. right? You're, you're, You're honoring it as it should be honored. So I might glorify God by speaking back to God. God, you're great. I acknowledge who you are. You are powerful. You are one. There's only you. I'm acknowledging the significance of God. Let me give you an analogy. Now, I, I'm gonna, the analogy is I'm in, my wife, okay? And I'm not merely trying to win points with her this morning, but if I do, that's okay too. Um, think about my wife. She's glorious, okay? In the true sense of the word, uh, she's significant. Only have one wife, okay? Only have one wife. She is significant to me. And she is significant in the world. And I, in a sense, give her honor and glory when I acknowledge that significance, that uniqueness of of who she is. Second component of glory is beauty. It's radiance. And my wife is beautiful. My wife, is a she's a beautiful woman. Beautiful in appearance. Beautiful in personality. God is... Beautiful. Okay. When people had the rare occasion to see just a glimpse of what is called the glory of God, it's, it's overwhelming. It's, all, it's almost frighteningly beautiful. Uh, they cower 
but they want more. Because it's, it's frightening, but it's so appealing and it's so attractive. God, don't destroy me with your glory, but can I see more? Can I see more? Beautiful picture of this is Moses when he would go into the tent of meeting and he would, he would meet with God, it says face to face. God would give him a little glimpse into his beauty. And Moses would stay and he'd listen and he would speak and, 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 and interact with God. And when he came out, we're told that the, the beauty of God would actually have become almost embedded in Moses. And so Moses would come out, you know, he's glowing, he's radiating, and people would, would have to turn away. So it, was, it was frightening. And so Moses put a veil over his face. What we're told in the book of Daniel, that someday we will be in the presence of God and we will become glorified. And so we will radiate, reflect the beauty of God. And we don't normally think of an 80 or 90 year old man like Moses as beautiful, but he was beautiful because he'd been in the presence of God. We will be in the presence of God and there will be something about us that is startlingly, frighteningly beautiful because we radiate God. We won't be afraid of one another because we'll all be glowing. Daniel tells us. That's what a glorified body is. Not just a body that doesn't break down physically, but a a body that is astoundingly beautiful because it reflects God. And what Paul is saying here is church believers, when you react to one another and respond to one another as family, people see the beauty and the significance of God. When you don't pick up light things, small offenses, you forgive them and leave them down. You radiate the weighty thing, which is God. When you sacrifice your rights, which are the light things, the small things, and instead you lift up the other person and his rights, you radiate the beauty of God. And that is why God has left the church on earth. And so what Paul is doing here in this section as he's kind of wrapping up this argument is is he's trying to put our small things in light of God's great things. Okay? So he's he's wrapping up this, this argument in Romans where he has laid out this master plan of God and he's saying, I want you to think for a moment about what God is doing because for all of history, God's program and plan has been to make a family for himself. So I want you to live like that family. So you can radiate the beauty and the glory of God. Hey, read with me now. Chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also has accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. So, in other words, Paul says, let me put it in light of God's big plan. I could summarize it like this. Jesus affirms the reliability of God by fulfilling the promises given to Israel for the world. That phrase, the truth of God, could be better translated the reliability of God. The faithfulness of God. God keeps his promises. And God gave promises to Israel, but those promises to Israel are for the whole world. And so he references us back to the fathers. And when you hear the word fathers, you should think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
promises were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We often call them, uh, those promises, the Abrahamic covenant, but it was repeated then to Isaac and it was repeated to Jacob and passed down to the Jewish people. And so Paul is here affirming a Jewish priority. Jesus came first to the Jews. Why? Because promises were made to the Jews. Jesus said in his own earthly ministry, I came only to the lost sheep of the tribe of the nation of Israel. Which is really strange when you read a few chapters later after his death, burial, and resurrection, go and preach the gospel to all nations. Well, what's he about? Jesus pulled his disciples aside and he said, I want you to go out and and do ministry with me. Talk about the kingdom of God, but don't, don't tell the Gentiles about it. Just tell the Jews. Don't go in the way of the Samaritans either. Just tell the Jews. Why? Because God had made promises to Israel that he would send them a king, a messiah. And that Messiah would bless all nations, but God had to first fulfill his promises to the Jews. So we have noticed as we've gone through the book of Romans, this Jewish historical redemptive priority. The gospel was given first to the Jews, Paul says, and then to the Gentiles. It was given first to the Jews so that it could be passed on to the Gentiles in fulfillment of promises given to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. But then through you, I'm going to bless all peoples. Now, you hear the Abrahamic covenant, you should think about three things, right? That should be kind of burned into your mind. Three elements of this covenant. They're land, seed, and blessing. Okay, first is a land. In Paul's day, did the Jews hold the land? Well, sort of, right? They actually considered themselves to be still in exile because they were under Roman authority. And shortly after Paul wrote this book, There was another rebellion in Israel, and the Jews were thrown off the land. They were dispersed. They were brought back onto the land and became a nation again in 1948, just in recent history. Are the the Jews now in possession of the land then? Is that fulfillment of the promise? Well, they sort of hold the land, but not all of it, right? If you look at the land promise, there are dimensions given. The Jews don't hold all of those dimensions, There's also a promise associated with the land that they will have prosperity and they will have security. Neither of which are they fully experiencing now. One of my favorite spots, as I mentioned this last time we went to Israel, was up on the Golan Heights, which previously had been a part of Syria. And um, during a recent war, it was taken over by the Jews. There's a a military outpost up there and the signpost, which I love, because uh, it, it illustrates that um, Damascus, Syria, is closer to this spot than the prime minister's office. Um, it, it's, a, it's a tenuous thing. You can look down from the Golan Heights into Syria, or you can look just a f- little further nor- north and see Lebanon, or you look south and you see Jordan. Israel's surrounded by enemies. Uh, I hope that you keep up with the news. This is the current president of Iran, uh, Ahmadinejad, and he, he does, he's not a friend for Israel. He wants to stir up the Muslim world to destroy the nation of Israel. Okay? And you should pay attention to these things. There's an election going on in e- Egypt right now, and there are two men who have, are going to be now in a, 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 a runoff election. One is a former army general under Mubarak, and the other is a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. Okay? There's going to be more tension because the promise of the land has not yet been fulfilled. When will it happen? Second promise, and that is a seed or a people. Okay, 
a racial people. And as we talked about in Romans 9 through 11, remarkably, dramatically, there are still Jews on the earth, even though they've been persecuted everywhere they've gone and there have been pogroms and there's been the Holocaust, yet the Jews still exist. However, most Jews live outside of Israel. I don't remember the exact numbers, but there are probably as many Jews in, in the United States or more Jews in the United States than there are in, in Israel right now. Your largest single concentration of Jews is, is not even in Israel. They, they're spread out. They're all over the world. They do, however, still exist. They're also pl- promised blessing. And that blessing was, was physical and material, but it was also spiritual. It, it included multiple elements, physical and spiritual. God said to Abraham, I'll bless you and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And as we read on in our Old Testament, we come to the prophetic sections in Isaiah and Jeremiah and we learn that God's going to give a new covenant and that new covenant will be the means by which God fulfills these blessing promises. And Jesus came and he began to offer himself as king and he offered himself as the initiator and inaugurator of a new covenant and the Jewish people rejected him. And they rejected the new covenant. And so they're still waiting for Messiah to come. They don't think Messiah has yet come. They don't believe Jesus was Messiah. And so they're living on the land, but insecurely. They're scattered throughout the face of the earth. They're waiting for blessing. When will it occur? What will it look like? Well, I'm going to give you a really quick summary And I don't want you to feel compelled to scramble and write it down because I'm going to do this like in 30 seconds. Uh, But you can get all these slides online. But I want to give you just a quick visual of how I think these promises will be fulfilled. Quick outline. We live now in the church age. How long will it last? We don't know. In my understanding of God's outworking of his program to make a family for himself, the next thing that happens is the rapture of the church. That word rapture occurs in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It means literally to be caught up. So we're told that Jesus begins to descend from heaven and then he catches us up and we meet Christ in the air. I believe it happens before the tribulation period starts. I understand not everybody agrees with me. That's okay. We don't have to agree on everything to be one family. Families disagree with one another once in a while. That's okay. But I'm right. Um, at least I hope I'm right because I don't want to be there, right? So, you know, we're, the bottom line is we're all going to be surprised. This is how I think it maps out. This is how I think. The reason for that is that the tribulation period, in my understanding, isn't for us. It's not for the church. If you look worldwide, the church is suffering right now. In most places other than the United States, the church suffers a lot. The tribulation suffering, I believe, is for Israel. It is intense suffering, sometimes called uh, Jacob's trouble. And it's designed to bring Israel to repentance so that they will finally understand that Jesus is the Messiah given to them for the world. And so they suffer. They think Messiah has shown up and he's called Antichrist, the substitute Christ. They make a covenant with him. He makes promises to them, allows them to begin offering sacrifices up on the Temple Mount again. But then he breaks that covenant halfway through this seven-year period and they begin to suffer even more intensely. And they are prepared, they are ripe because they are longing for Messiah to deliver them from all of this suffering. 
And then God sends his son and we're told in Zechariah, they look on him whom they have pierced and they mourn for him and they're broken and they realize that was God's Messiah sent for us and we missed him. They receive him as Messiah and he establishes his kingdom. On here it says millennial kingdom. The Old Testament phrase is the Davidic kingdom. Okay? It's the, the kingdom promised through David's son from Israel for all nations. And so Israel has the land, but they have the land so that they can be a blessing to all nations. And all nations come together and they worship together and they set aside their differences because they're unified in one Messiah who is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had to come as a Jew because he was promised to the Jews, but he didn't come simply for them. He came for all peoples from every tribe, tongue, people and nation, because what God is about is making a family for himself from all nations. That's why he made us different. That's why he made multiple cultures and peoples and languages to gather for himself one family from all of these things, from all of these peoples. Notice what he says here, chapter 15 again. I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God, to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Jesus extends God's mercies to everybody. And what Paul does then to illustrate this is he gives four quotations of scripture. And it's interesting because uh, of the four they represent each of the three major categories of Jewish scriptures. There's law, prophets, and writings. There's a quote from each. The first comes from Psalm chapter 18. David speaking, he says, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will sing your name. That is your reputation. And what is David singing about in Psalm chapter 18? He's singing about the fact that God has delivered his Messiah and set his Messiah up to rule over all nations. And so among the nations, David says, let me sing God's praises, that he is ruler. Next quote comes from Deuteronomy, from the law. Again, he says, now rejoice, O Gentiles. You join in, Gentiles, with his people. And what are they praising God for in Deuteronomy 32? That God has established his rule and reign over all peoples, to bless all peoples. Verse 11, again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all peoples praise him. Psalm 117, the shortest psalm in the Bible. Praise God because he is loyal in his love, he is truthful, and he is reliable. He always keeps his promises. Verse 12, again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and him the Gentiles shall hope. That is, from Jesse's family, Through the promises given to David, God will send a Messiah and all nations will hope in him. All nations. And this is what God has been about. For all of human history, this is what has been in the heart of God to make us one family for himself. Paul concludes with a benediction or a blessing. This is in chapter 15, verse 13. And as we're about to read that, if I could ask Uh, The folks who are serving us communion this morning, if you could go to the back and get prepared as we read the blessing together. Chapter 15, verse 13. Paul writes, Now, may the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all hope. May you abound in hope. Hope is, again, biblically not wishful thinking, but it's this confident and eager expectation that God has all things in control right now and he's going to set all things right. And so I'm living for that day. In other words, Paul's saying, let me put your minor grievances and differences into a much broader light. Forgive one another because you're forgiven in Jesus Christ. Accept one another because you're accepted in Jesus Christ. Worship with one another because Jesus Christ has removed the obligations of the old covenant and he's brought in anew. Love one another, serve one another, sacrifice with one another, forgive each other. Why? Because there's something so much greater and more glorious and more durable and lasting that God has prepared for you. It's hope. It's hope in his kingdom and his righteousness. And he brought all that about through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. See, Romans has been, has been focusing us constantly on Jesus Christ. Okay? God's Messiah, God's King. The one who has accomplished not just justification, the removal of our debt, but the one who has accomplished our hope so that we will live with God forever. Now, in light of that big picture, Paul says, accept one another. And be unified with one another. So people can look in with the way, at the way that you interact and they can see my glory, my beauty, my significance. As we close, we're going to celebrate communion together. And as we're being served, what I'd like you to do is just take a few moments and, and give God thanks for Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished in Christ. And if there are, are things that you are holding on to with another believer in Christ right now, I'd like you to put those in light of the sacrifice of Christ and what he's done for you. The servers come forward and deliver to us uh, the, the elements, and, and let's wait for one another. And we'll take the bread and the cup together. The night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it. So this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. What you have done for us is truly the most important thing about us. I pray, Father, that you teach us to live together as one. Father, we do thank you that you're willing to give your son and sacrifice him for us so that we could be accepted by you through Christ, not because of what we have accomplished, not because of what we have conquered, but simply because we are in Christ. Father, it's really a remarkable thing for us to contemplate that after 10,000 years, we will just be beginning. I pray, Father, that you'd stretch our minds so we lay aside the, the small things, be overwhelmed by your greatness, your beauty, your significance, and that would control all of our relationships. 
way that we treat one another and accept one another. And I pray, Father, for us as a church that um, you bring healing and uh, you bring maturity and mutual sacrifice. I pray, Father, that others would see the way that we genuinely love one another and they'd be, be drawn to your beauty and your glory. It's in Christ's glorious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.